Next, Tony Stavaker begins a three-part series on the diaries of Noel Coward, revealing some of his passionate opinions on politics, the arts, and the state of the country. It reveals his enjoyment of the royals and his utter dismay at what he sees as a rising tide of vulgarity. With further insights from the man who shared his life, Graham Payne, and the voice of the late Simon Cadell, who passed away soon after these programmes were made in 1996, this is part one of Noel. Coward from his diaries. Noel Coward's diaries offer a very personal and revealing commentary on the last 30 years of his life. In these three programmes we'll air some of his philosophy, his politics, his enjoyment of showbiz and royal gossip, and some typically caustic jokes. The spirit of the writer hovers protectively over these lines. Sunday, February the 19th, 1956. There is a great freeze in dear, green England, and the government has imposed still more restrictions on gracious living. Anthony Eden's popularity has spluttered away like a blob of fat in a frying pan. The Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh have returned from their triumphant tour of Nigeria, in the course of which they attended countless religious services and encountered a great many quaint native children who danced for them, sang at them, and presented them with humble bouquets and various specimens of native crafts. There is a rumour that Princess Margaret is about to become a Roman Catholic. This was started by the American Daily News, which, as we all know, is in constant contact with the Vatican. A. A. Milne has died. Lord Beaverbrook has not. Lord Ackley has been involved in a minor motor accident, the Oliviers have decided to present a united front to a deeply concerned world, and so Peter Finch is not going to be her leading man in my play, or out of it. I have taken to cooking and listening to Wagner, both of which frighten me to death. A vein of understated but steely Englishness runs through these diaries, undiluted by the years that Noel Coward spent in tax exile. The first entries in his diary, which he started during the war, are little more than a reminder of his daily activities. But he still manages to convey some vivid snapshots of his country at war. In 1941, he visited Plymouth. Friday, July the 11th, 1941. Spent the morning with Lady Astor, walking around the devastated town. A strange experience. Lady Astor, very breezy, noisy, and au fond, terribly kind banging people on the back and making jokes. The people themselves, stoic, sometimes resentful of her, but generally affectionately tolerant. The whole city is a pitiful sight. Houses that have held sailor families since the time of Drake spread across the road in rubble and twisted wood. We watched the people of Plymouth dancing on the hoe, a large dance floor, white-coated band, several hundred girls, gaily dressed, dancing very well with sailors, soldiers and marines in the strong evening sunlight. A sight so infinitely touching, not that it was consciously brave, but because it was so ordinary and unexhibitionist. The English do not always take their pleasures sadly, at least not when they are surrounded by death and destruction. Noel Coward's friendship with Louis Mountbatten was the springboard for a naval propaganda film, initially called The White Ensign, which later became In Which We Serve. The diaries record some of the main events in the course of its production. Wednesday, December the 17th, 1941. War news from the East, very depressing. It seems that once more we were not ready. 
Hong Kong being besieged, Singapore in danger. Jack Beddington rang up from the Ministry of Information to say that they considered in which we serve was bad propaganda for outside England, and that the M of I could not in any way be associated with it. When I asked why it was considered bad propaganda, he said it was because a ship was sunk in it. I controlled myself during this conversation and agreed to meet them to discuss it tomorrow at five. This I have no intention of doing. Absolutely appalled by this utterly infuriating impertinence, will ask Dicky to take the script direct to Winston. Certain that there is a campaign still going on against me. Time will show. Dicky went off like a time bomb. Obstacles were removed, and the film went into production at Denham Studios early in 1942. Tiresome morning at the studios. Everyone argued about the colour of the water in the tank. I finally did some test shots, submerging myself and then shooting to the surface. The water was very thick and highly nauseating, having had, in addition to two hundred sailors in full equipment, quite a lot of whiting and endless buckets of black oil. Everyone felt faint and got spitting headaches. The afternoon was better, but the water was still too hot. Finally, I was told I was down to fire watch on Saturday night. This looks like a frame-up on the part of the dear studio workers. They know perfectly well that for me this is the hardest week of the whole film. Nevertheless, I intend to do it if I die in the attempt. I shall also look to see if the fire-watching organisation is efficient, and if it is not. I shall report it. A cheerier entry five weeks later, when the royal family visited the set. Wednesday, April the eighth, nineteen forty-two. A proud and pleasant day. At three o'clock, the king and queen arrived with the two princesses, Dicky and Edwina. We took them first to stage five, where the king took the salute. Then I did the Dunkirk speech. The ship rolled. The wind machine roared. In fact, everything went beautifully. All the time they were perfectly charming, easy and interested, and of course with the most exquisite manners to everyone. The Queen is clearly the most enchanting woman. The princesses were thrilled and beautifully behaved. Altogether, it was an exhibition of unqualified niceness from all concerned, and I hope it impressed the studio as much as it should have. Not just because the King and Queen and princesses of England put themselves out to make everyone they met happy and at ease. There are many who might say. So they should, for it's part of their job. This is perfectly true. It was also part of Pavlova's job to dance perfectly, and part of Sarah Bernhardt's job to act better than anyone else. I'll settle for anyone who does their job that well, anyhow. For five months, the world outside Denham Studios ceased to exist for Noel Card. The film was completed on schedule and released in the autumn. Friday, September the twenty-fifth, nineteen forty-two. Read the London notices of the film, which are absolute superlatives. Nothing but great picture and finest film of the year, etc. The most gratifying thing of all is that even the commonest journalistic mind has observed that it really is a dignified tribute to the navy. The war continues to drone along, a horrible background to everything. It appears that the Russians despise us for not starting a second front. I don't think it would matter nearly as much if the press hadn't been so busy building them up into being the finest race alive and our beloved and staunch allies. Personally, I am convinced they are no more allies than Hitler and Mussolini. What the English sentimentalists fail to realise is that the Russian view of life is opposed to ours in every way. 
They are not fighting for us, but to defend their own land very bravely and effectively, but not for us. And I am sure that if they are not utterly crippled by the war for many years to come, we and the rest of so-called Western civilization are going to have a hell of a time with them. Noel Coward, writing in 1942. With the passing of the years, he opens even more of himself up to these diaries. Some entries are like letters to himself, reminders of what he really believes in, mixing political commentary, movie criticism and nostalgia. Graham Payne, who shared the last 30 years of Coward's life, edited the diaries for publication in 1982. I was surprised that he really minded as much as he put down about what the press said, because he didn't show it. He was fantastic about that. I mean, if they'd slaughter a plane and kill it, um, he rose above it and just went on with the conversation of other things. But reading in the things, he really was deeply hurt. For a few days only, then he got over it. I must say, um, well, he had the brains to do that. You have to, you can't just sit there moping. If they attack it, if you, you know, I mean, he didn't write a bad play on purpose, did he? Or were, was it a bad play? But they were just after him. But they really were, I mean, for a long, long time. They kept attacking him on everything he did. Monday, July the 1st, 1946. Well, the atom bomb experiment was made last night with apparently disappointing results. I would like it put on record that I think now and have always thought that far too much cock has been talked about atomic energy. I have no more faith in men of science being infallible than I have in men of God being infallible, principally on account of them being men. I woke early and wrote the first scene of the last act, because, atom bomb or no atom bomb, I intend to get the operetta finished. In the evening, Coley, Joyce, Graham and I went to Deal and saw the film of Bitter Sweet. Having only seen it once, we had forgotten the full horror of it. It really is frightening that the minds of Hollywood could cheerfully perpetrate such a nauseating hotchpotch of vulgarity, false values, seedy dialogue, stale sentiment, vile performance and abominable direction. I had forgotten the insane coquetting of Miss Jeanette MacDonald, allied to a triumphant lack of acting ability. I had forgotten the resolute, stocky, flabby heaviness of Mr. Nelson Eddy. You know the name he gave them, don't you? Because, you know, it was with Nelson Eddy, this blonde chap. So it was like an affair between a mad rocking horse and a rawhide suitcase. His <laughs> criticism of those two. Oh, yes, I do remember it. It was terrible. Oh, God. Nothing whatever to do with bittersweet. I love the idea of him sitting in the one and nines in a rank cinema in deal watching the film and yeah. really hating it. Hating Presumably it. Well, he was quite vocal about it, would, would he have been? Oh, yes, he went on quite a lot about it, I can tell you. <laughs> That's where the mad Rocky Horse bit came in. <laughs> People in the cinema oh, asking him to be quiet. Now, he had no further respect for Jeanette MacDonald because I know much, many years later 
she came to visit him in New York because she'd had a very successful tour, personal tour, of doing bits of her own films or songs and things. And she wanted to include all sorts of songs from different shows into her act, and he refused. He wouldn't let her do it. So no, sorry. After this vulgar orgy of tenth-rate endeavour, we sat on the seafront and watched the hardy English children and a few adults advancing mauve with cold into the cheerless waves. The children were touching and sweet. We watched little boys of nine and ten undressing and dressing with such excessive modesty that it took them ages to get their little wet bathing trunks off under their towels. They squirmed, wriggled, cavorted themselves into most uncomfortable attitudes for fear that some roving eye might chance momentarily on their poor little privates. What a dreadful and foolish mistake to inculcate that self-consciousness into small children! Oh dear, we really are a most peculiar race. In 1949, Noel Coward was at Pinewood Studios making a film of his own play, *The Astonished Heart*. Long days' work, very hot. Every conceivable mechanical hitch occurred, but we managed to act fairly well, I think. Spectacular scene in the afternoon, when I had to send for J. Arthur Rank. His minions have suggested that I play the picture for nothing as a gesture to the British film industry. Oi, oi! There was a great and lovely drama in the course of which I beat him down and finished with a virtual guarantee of twenty-five thousand pounds and a fairly large, as yet unspecified, percentage of the profits. If the picture is a dead flop, I only get five thousand pounds. If it is a moderate success and they break even and get their money back, I get another twenty thousand. A German journalist on the set today told me that Germany was recovering by leaps and bounds, that the Nazis were numerous, and that the Germans worked twelve hours a day without cups of tea every hour or so. As he said this, he cast a contemptuous glance round our stage. Everybody in sight was standing about drinking tea. We have a five-day week. Two of those days are early days. It is impossible, really, to put our backs into it and finish the picture. The British film industry is on the verge of dissolution. I wonder why. The New Year's Eve entries in Noel Coward's diaries often include an end-of-year stock-taking. Here he is in Jamaica in 1956. Christmas week is over, and the giving, receiving, wrapping, and unwrapping, determined conviviality, pressure, crushed-down irritations, and simulated enthusiasms are over too. Now there is the debris. The letters of thanks to be written, the wondering what to do with and where to put so many heartwarming gifts, the physical and mental inertia. It will take a few days yet to be able to get clear of miscellaneous gratitudes. The Christmas dinner itself was fairly nasty. The turkey was passable, but there were no sausages with it, no rolls of bacon, and no bread sauce, and the roast potatoes were beige and palely loitering. Croydon obliged by having three kittens under an armchair in my sitting room during the early hours of the morning. Judging from their colouring, their conception was far from immaculate. She appears to be delighted with them. On Saturday, I went to Kingston, stayed the night at King's House, and went with the governor and his wife to a gala performance of their pantomime, given ostensibly in my honour. I am, as a rule, the first to encourage theatre enthusiasm and ambition and sincere effort to do something worthwhile, even if the efforts are only amateur. 
but this display of complacent self-indulgence was hard to bear. The only discernible talent lay in the designing of the dresses and the sense of colour. The performance from every point of view, even by amateur standards, was beneath contempt. I had a terrible urge, instead of smiling and complimenting everyone, to rise up and protest and say that entertainment was my life's work and to see it prostituted with such breathless suburban idiocy was a mortal sin and, unlike more conventional mortal sins, completely unpardonable. I did not obey this urge and retained my sickening popularity and charm, but inside I was deeply angry. This turbulent year ends with today, and I am not sorry. I have enjoyed some of it, but on the whole it has been agitating, distracting, and once or twice almost defeating. It has brought me a change of life in the geographical sense, and probably a little private menopause as well. It has also brought me, inevitably perhaps, a certain change of heart regarding my own country, which I do not like. I have a core of sadness about England, Sadness mixed with a sort of desolate irritation that a country and people so rich in tradition and achievement should betray itself and what it stands for by so wholeheartedly submitting to foolish government, natural laziness, woolly thinking, and above all, the new religion of mediocrity. The age of the common man has taken over a nation which owes its very existence to uncommon men. This is a dismal metamorphosis. Perhaps, however, there is still hope. I'm so glad to come out in, in the diaries what his character was, was like, really, more than the image that the publicity had given him, of this playboy stuff, you know, which was fine. And he was a bit of a playboy, too. He's both, you know, he, he enjoyed that very much. Loved going to the glamorous parties and meeting all the great big stars of the time and the new ones and so on. It was great, terrific. So that was the other side of his character that nobody knew about, because they all looked upon him as a sophisticated chap flaunting to cocktail parties and cigarette holders and, you know, and all that. It wasn't him, basically, at all. But he kept it up, because it made a very good front, didn't it? It made people talk of things of another sort altogether. Sunday, June the 28th, 1959. Graham and I have taken a great shine to the east end of London, and we drive down and go to different pubs, where we find the exquisite manners of true cockneys, all of whom, men and women, are impeccably dressed, and none of whom is in the least look back in angerish, merely cheerful and friendly, and disinclined to grumble about anything. I am forced to the conclusion that the viewpoint of our younger playwrights is slightly off true. I would like one day to write an intimate, completely cockney musical without any sordid overtones. The critics won't like it, and the left-wing highbrows won't like it. But the public will. He might have, um, but he didn't. Not that I remember. Maybe he can get an idea of a theme song. He used to like that first. To get, he had a vague idea of a storyline, but the main thing that he wanted was the theme song, and then that would spring him off. But going down to the East End is another atmosphere altogether. It's like being in another town, isn't it? You know, quite different. And great fun we had. You know, that was it. 1959 was the year that Noel Coward settled in Switzerland. 
He bought a house that he described as a roomy but fairly hideous chalet in the mountains above Montreux. The following year, he came to London for Princess Margaret's wedding. Sunday, May the 8th, 1960. The wedding itself was moving and irreproachably organised. We had good seats and couldn't see much, but it was thrilling all the same. The Queen alone looked disagreeable. Whether or not this was concealed sadness or bad temper because Tony Armstrong Jones had refused an earldom, nobody seems to know, but she did scowl a good deal. Princess Margaret looked like the ideal of what any fairy tale princess should look like. Tony Armstrong Jones, pale, a bit tremulous, and completely charming. Prince Philip, jocular and really very sweet and reassuring as he led the bride to the altar. The music was divine and the fanfare immensely moving. Nowhere in the world but England could such pomp and circumstance and pageantry be handled with such exquisite dignity. There wasn't one note of vulgarity or anything approaching it in the whole thing. In America, such a balance between grandeur and jollity would be impossible. In France or Italy, hysterical. In Germany, heavy-handed. And in Russia, ominous. But in dear London, it was lusty, charming, romantic, splendid, and conducted without a false note. It is still a pretty exciting thing to be English. After the wedding, I watched the whole thing, including the embarkation on the Britannia, on the television. It was moving and romantic, and the weather still held, and when the tower bridge opened and the yacht passed through it with those two tiny figures waving from just below the bridge, I discovered unashamedly and without surprise that my eyes were full of tears. 1963 was a year of great activity on three major musicals and the revival in London of Private Lives. The diary entries for this year are headed New York, Jamaica, Sydney, Bangkok, San Francisco and Singapore. Sunday, July the 21st, 1963, aboard the SS Chitral. Here I am at sea again in a deluxe cabin in a P&O. This sounds like a contradiction in terms, but many things have changed and both P and O have pulled up their socks. My stay in Singapore was very restful. Adam Faith appeared with a Jewish manager and four young rhythm boys called the Roulettes. I went to see his second performance in the Happy World Stadium. It was all so deafening that I wished to God I had brought my earplugs. Adam is very attractive and has considerable charm. He wore a midnight blue Italian silk suit and rocked and rolled with the utmost authority to the ear-shattering accompaniment of the Roulettes. I talked to Adam by the pool the following day. Simple and unaffected, a very nice boy. Like an island, he is always entirely surrounded by teenagers, photographers and the lint-white roulettes who are uniformly hideous. What a peculiar life. By now he's back in London, recording and rehearsing for a summer show in Bridlington. I had a farewell evening in Bugis Street and was rewarded by meeting a heavily tattooed, bearded sailor with a parrot on a bit of bamboo. He was charming and very funny. His friend was called Biscuits, because his name is Crawford. They finally disappeared, parrot and all, into the seething world, having completely made my evening. I had a truly touching letter from Valerie Profumo. She certainly is a gallant behaviour. Poor Jack Profumo. Idiotic Jack Profumo has resigned from the government and there is a full-blooded scandal flooding the papers. 
Those miserable little tarts, Christine Keeler and Mandy Rice Davis, are having a ball and implicating everyone they can think of. They have both apparently been given vast sums for their sordid life stories. I do know what the world's coming to, and that's a fact. It's coming to complete moral and mental disintegration. We all know that sex orgies, flagellation, homosexuality, adultery and procuring have gone on since the beginning of recorded time. But never before has it been so widely and vulgarly and lasciviously publicised. Most of the vulgarity can, as usual, be blamed on the press. The policy of leading newspapers has been for years based on a cynical appeal to the lowest in human nature. I think in a troubled world, when the yellow and black tides are rising, the Western white people are displaying singularly little foresight or imagination. To take a gloomy view of life is not part of my philosophy. To laugh at the idiocies of my fellow creatures is. However, at this particular moment, I cannot find so much to laugh at as I would like. It is a dismaying spectacle, this almost universal decay of values. Money, publicity, sex, political corruption, bad manners, and incomprehensible silliness. No standards left but the evening standard. As Queen Mary said on being informed that Edward intended to abdicate, here's a pretty kettle of fish. In the autumn of that year, he was in New York, directing The Girl Who Came to Supper, and at the same time casting for the musical version of Blythe Spirit. Saturday, September the 14th, 1963. Rehearsals are going wonderfully. There are a few things wrong, but I'm being like Dad and keeping Mum until we get into the theatre. On Saturday, I attended the Battle of Britain dinner, given in remembrance of those young men who saved, temporarily, the world. It was simple, dignified, sparsely attended, and to me, almost intolerably sad. The atmosphere was thick with dreadful nostalgia. The Battle of Britain was 23 years ago, and the world has forgotten it. Those young men, so many of whom I knew, flew up into the air and died for us, and all we believed in, and all we believed in has so changed that they needn't really have died at all. It was all a nonsense. So incredibly brave, so beautiful and true, and now, 23 years later, it is remembered for one night in the year by a handful of people assembled in a New York hotel. I wanted suddenly to stand up and shout, Shut up! Stop it! What's the use of this calculated nostalgia? Let's face the truth. The England we knew and loved was betrayed at Munich, revived for one short year in 1940, and was supreme in adversity, and now no longer exists. That last great year was our valediction. It will never happen again. We are now beset by the clever ones, all the cheap, frightened people the young men who are angry and mediocre, the playwrights who can see nothing but defeat and who have no pride, no knowledge of the past, no reverence for our lovely heritage, nothing but a sick kowtowing to fear of death. Perhaps, just perhaps, someone will rise up and say, this isn't good enough. There is still the basic English character to hold on to. But is there? I am old now. Sixty-three is old, all right. I despise the young who see no quality in our great past and who spit with phony left-wing disdain on all that we as a race have contributed to the living world. I have been to the Battle of Britain dinner 
on the 14th of September 1963. And tomorrow I shall start reconcentrating on whether the show has enough style or not and who shall play Ruth in high spirits and how my financial situation can be satisfactorily arranged and how I can get enough put by for my really old age which will soon overwhelm me. In the meantime, I say a grateful goodbye to those foolish, gallant young men who made it possible for me to be alive today and to write these sentimental words. Noel Coward, writing for himself in 1963. His diaries were read today by Simon Cadell. Next week, we'll continue our trawl through the Noel Coward diaries to fish out his thoughts on America, the medical profession, sex and sexuality. Noel Coward from his diaries was edited and introduced by Tony Stavaker. The producer was Susan Roberts, and despite what Tony says, the series continues at the same time tomorrow. <laughs>